0: Welcome to the Impossible Healthcare Podcast, where we talk to the experts about pressing topics in healthcare. I'm Samir Berry, And I'm Mike Albert. And we are both doctors at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. Welcome back to another episode of Impossible Healthcare. Um, Excited for our second episode in our series on digital health startups. We're fortunate to have Sean Duffy of Omada Health join us on the podcast today. For those of you who don't know, Sean Duffy is... Um, started out uh, pursuing his MD MBA at Harvard. Um, he did an internship at the famous design firm IDEO, where he learned about the merits of design thinking and would later interrupt his MD MBA to, to found uh, the, what we now know as Omada Health, which is a full-stack digital health company which, who focuses on uh, treating and managing obesity-related diseases. They've now expanded their services to include diabetes, mental health disorders, Um, and he's a tremendous guest, had a lot of fun talking to him, Samir.
1: It was great to hear, especially from such a successful founder about what it took in the early days to get this digital health company off the ground was fascinating. You know, especially early on, how did they plan for actuarial risk? How did they recruit patients and employers to embrace this new way of delivering care? And also looking forward, how are they building out new behavioral health platforms? How do they decide what sort of disease states to go into? It was really great to just kind of hear the way he thinks about these kinds of problems. And then moving forward, even looking at the industry as a whole, and we asked Sean whether he thought the digital health industry was getting too fragmented, if there's a solution for each and every problem. It's just great to hear his thought process.
0: Yeah, and my favorite part probably was his reference to the human component and how important that is as part of behavioral health management. Um you know, you need the human touch. You need the accountability, the understanding, and I don't know if that can ever be outsourced to a digital or machine solution. Um, and so, the the relevance of the human as part of care is, I think, will always be important. I, I thought that was tremendous, uh, a tremendous point he had.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. Let's jump in. So, if you could just tell us a little bit, uh, just to get all the listeners on the same page about Omada.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Omada Health is a company I founded. Um, uh, Really, the best way to think of this is is what a provider could and should be in terms of delivering digital care at scale uh, for critical condition areas. So, you know, we at Omada have digital care programs for diseases like pre diabetes, type 2 diabetes, hypertension and behavioral health um, and really have this ambition to bring higher quality care uh, at reduced cost to more people across the U.S.,
1: one of the key components of some of your programs are are grouping people together to achieve better health outcomes, uh, using digital health coaches. Could you talk a little bit about how that works?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the areas that we really got focused on first um, were in obesity-related chronic disease. So prediabetes, type 2, hypertension. I think the first thing I always think about is what was life like for a person before Omada? Um, And at the end of the day, I mean, people would show up to their, and do, you know, all across the country show up to their doctors, maybe leave with medicines they don't quite understand and just fall into these huge gaps uh, between visits. And uh, at Omada, uh, uh, we've aimed to just completely change that. So you mentioned the group support. It does involve that. If if you sign up for the Omada program, all of a sudden, You have a coach in your pocket, really helping you understand your condition. Think about think about how to live the healthiest life you can with it. You've got all the devices you need: uh, cellular glucometers, uh, scales, blood pressure cuffs to make sure that we're feeding the data back in to support you and your coach. Uh, A content experience, a curriculum experience, all the tracking needed to keep an eye on your progress. Uh, And the goal for Amada was always to really not take any shortcuts and build the full stack capabilities required to. Uh, really get the best outcomes for someone um, all in one. So, you know, we often joke in the halls of Amada, there's nine digital health companies in one at the company um, because we've built all the capabilities independently, but we felt that that's what people really needed to achieve the best health.
1: Behavioral health is such a critical component of OMADA, and it's really part of the the DNA of your company. I want to get into some specifics here because Mike and I know, and, and you're well aware that changing behavior is incredibly difficult, but so important to improving health outcomes. What do you see as the future with regards to personalizing these sorts of behavioral interventions and nudges without encroaching you know, too much on people's privacy or being too paternalistic, right? I mean, I could see a future where, you know, the an app uh, notifies you that you're at a fast food restaurant and nudges you to order something healthy or, or you know, even get out of line and 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 order something else. You know, how do you how do you balance hyper personalization of behavioral nudges with privacy?
2: It's a it's a super important question. I think it, it all starts with making sure that everything you do helps build trust with your your participant and your user. Um, so, Omada, we actually operate um, under HIPAA as a covered entity, so as a proper provider. So, when a, when someone signs up to the Omada program, they agree to the same sort of notice of privacy practices that they would if they, you know, walked across the street to Stanford Hospital, and we hold ourselves to that that standard. And and per, you know, per your point, it's interesting. I think the you know some of the most innovative things that can be done involve the intersection between data science and behavior as it relates to a care outcome it's an area where you have to tread really thoughtfully and uh, make sure that the participant always knows, um, how, how their data is being used always understands the guardrails and always opts in to the support them um, as is rel- as, 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 relevant in their life. Um, and then, you know, and then behind the scenes, of course, you can make sure to manage data inside your organization, um, in a very professional way, but, but it is, um, it, you know it's one of those neat areas where it's so much so much promise um and you really have to make sure as an organization that you're operating with with a culture of and product principles of really taking advantage of the promise but doing it in the right way
0: so i have a question getting back to um the, su- the level of support you guys provide there really isn't a typical patient and I know this as a, a practitioner of lifestyle myself sure. I'm an b- obesity medicine trained physician and yep, yep a lot of what I provide along with the behavioral counseling medications lifestyle management is the hyper personalization of care and so I'm just wondering how do you balance sort of traditional population level management while also hyper personalizing the care for what is often a very heterogeneous uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. set of experiences, set of patients, um, they all come with their own kind of unique uh, challenges. H- how do you accomplish that, you know, at Omana Health?
2: And, and it's, it's, a, it's the most interesting and, and kind of, you know, difficult challenge of the of offerings in the space. So it's the, the way we've attacked it is really not forgetting how much people matter, uh, but also leveraging technology to have them be smarter, even more efficient, um and even more adapt at being able to customize and tailor their support, because you know folks ask well how 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 in today's world is care personalized? at the level of the physician, because you, when you interact with a patient, you're using all sorts of judgment, pattern recognition from previous patients, you know the emotional connection you have with the person, and that allows you to tailor your approach to meet their needs. Uh, n- not too different in digital. The, the crux in the task is how to scale it. So uh, y- you know, we and I, love technology, you know, like the next person here at Amada, what I always share is, you know, I'm, I'm relatively skeptical on the ability to take people out of the equation here because there's nothing in supporting someone's health journey, like accountability, trust, love, support, you know, tailoring the approaches based on uh, either clinical realities or certain life circumstances. And so we make sure that our coaches are trained and adept to really support the person in, in a customized way. And then make sure that we're using the tech to tee up ideas for them. So if we notice something anomalous in the way that someone's engaging with the program that we may have seen before, or or we think we have an idea of ways that a coach could build more trust with the person, we actually tee that up. So we've built, you know, Omada's version of the EMR behind the scenes and you as a coach wake up and there's, you know, 80 or so participants all organized by suggested priority. And they all have suggested topics that will, we believe, result in a more personalized experience, but you as a coach don't have to take advantage of those. And we watch, we see what the coach does. So if the coach uses the suggested topic and engages with the person, uh, that trains the data models, that that suggestion actually aligned with a coach's intuition on what's right for that person at that time, and it makes the system smarter. Um, But we've been very, very careful not to take a bot approach uh, you know not to just dis- not to assume that technology can replace the level of human support uh, needed to craft the the ultimate experience so it's um it's really kind of an a, a, an enormous art uh and it and it matters a lot it's something that I, you know i think that when folks come behind the scenes of Amada and see they leave really excited about but it's 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 actually one of those things where it's hard to show the visibility of that in action it's um it's a really it's a real point of pride over here
0: i think that's fantastic building on prior uh you know, success and, and having to inform, you know, potentially future success with with different patients that may have sort of a digital twin or or act, uh, exactly. respond similarly. So, you know, not everything is obviously going to be, uh, you know, uh, butterflies and, you know, obviously you're going to run into challenges. Every patient is unique in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in that regard. Uh, do you guys use any type of root cause analysis, you know, when maybe the program hasn't worked as well as you had hoped for a particular patient how do you analyze not only your successes as you describe but also your failures
2: uh, yeah no uh, really really important point because no no program can be perfect and you know ours of course isn't the we we always try we have a human factors research team uh, you know product and kind of development cycle look to try to connect with folks who've maybe fallen out and really learn learn why what what didn't land well with the program Um, You know, and you want to pay attention to both ends of the spectrum, folks where, you know, just you were, they rejected you, didn't work at all. And folks that were hugely successful and really understand like, what, what about the product really, really did it for you? So that's, that's the, um, that's the core goal is to always just listen, 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 Um, because if you do that and incorporate the learnings in the product cycle, the, the, the ideal end state is that. You know, as a for instance, you've got, uh, you know, a grandmother in, uh, you know, Virginia who signs up and has this eerie sense that, wow, this program seems like it was built for me and this company was built for me. I can't really pin down the specifics of why, but it's just landing well. And then the exact same thing's happening for, you know, a 28-year-old um, in Seattle in a completely different kind of life circumstances. So um, it's really listening and, and not allowing the data to Surface hypotheses, but also making sure you're always connecting with the people and hearing more about their experiences. Um, going in and literally going into people's homes, um, Omada users are not, and some not, just to, to, to understand their health in context of their actual physical setting.
1: No, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying. And the data supports all of that as well. You know, Mike and I, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to be familiar with the fact that clinical validation is something we're going to talk about later, but is very important. And you guys have been very successful in demonstrating objectively how successful your program is. I want to shift a little bit into more of the business of Omada sure. and the digital health industry. Do you think the area is getting a little too fragmented? Customers are not going to want to interact with a different app for hypertension diabetes sleep steps food tracking you know their IBS GERD could you see a point where in five six years there's so many different apps there's so many different digital health providers yeah. you know how do we consolidate this so it's not so fragmented from the patient's perspective is that a challenge that Omad is thinking about
2: you know it's funny I um, yes yeah, so it's interesting because the I mean there's some, some neat you know some people from the product team joined. Um, and you know, they described their experience of trying to almost pull together the, all the different pieces of the Omada program for their own personal or their friend's health. And they had to use like nine apps to do it. Yeah. And, and, and it's so, so I think you make a good point. There's, there's, um, it's almost like the way there's two ways I tend to think about it, right, rightly or wrongly. So, so what is, what, what's the requisite suite of tools to do the job and in our space, it became very, very clear early on that no one thing would be enough. And and, and the research is born this out. I mean, there's randomized controlled trials on great apps, like MyFitnessPal is a great app, randomized controlled trial and JAMA, null result, not -hmm. because it's a bad product, but literally because it's just one of the suite of things you need to contribute to a successful outcome. So I I always call it the single instrument fallacy in that there will never be a silver bullet. Like, you know, Mm -hmm, no one could, Omada couldn't design a good enough, tracker or coach interaction or content experience or group experience or goal architecture, Um, uh, you know, uh, to to get the outcome alone, you've got to have the full suite. And I I do think, I mean, in many ways, is we've almost consolidated a lot of the key pieces of the ecosystem needed to get an outcome in in our space. But more broadly, um, uh, you know, as as it relates to, um, uh, you know, the topic of, well, if I have diabetes, do I need a separate app from my other conditions? The, the way that I tend to think about it is, out, you know, beyond the feature level as clinical comorbidity, where if there are really tight clinical comorbidities that are, it's very, very likely that if you're suffering from this, you're suffering from that. You need to have them all centered in the same experience. Um, otherwise, it creates kind of a, an approach of fragmentation. If there's something completely different, that's okay, right? So if I'm working on my diabetes and all of a sudden I have a suspect mole, like, okay to have a separate experience in my view, if you're a patient to, you know, go into a dermatologist and it's, it's kind of a separate mental model. And, you know, I think people are used to that in their daily, in their daily life for all sorts of interactions with products and services across, um, you know, the country, but, um, you have to just start with, uh, how to make things easier for people, um, and make sure that you have all the needed tools to, to do the job, uh, in an integrated way
1: you get asked on, on every interview, what's next for Omada? And you kind of touched on that. It's it's really interesting to me that there must be significant effort involved in developing what's next and what disease state is yeah. going to be the next one to expand into, you know, new coaching protocols, new product features, training your health coaches. How do you determine that? What, what goes into determining what disease state is next? You mentioned that you pick conditions that are related to fix this kind of fragmentation issue but how do you how does that really happen at a granular level
2: so the the related side was one of the key reasons um, we entered uh you know uh, behavioral or mental health uh, with um uh, you know capabilities for depression anxiety it, it's just so clear that uh, our participants with you know either at risk for chronic diseases or with um uh, you know had such um, headwinds from depression uh, and anxiety that if you didn't provide capability to support that you weren't going to accomplish the the best outcomes clinically you could in the in the you know say the type 2 space so that that was what that was kind of a, a key driver there um even more broadly when i talk about your digital care for amada and the condition areas the the mental model i tend to use is you ask yourself and i think as tech changes and diagnostics change and Um, you know, devices change, the answer to this each year could be different. But you ask yourself, well, you know, can I, could I safely and effectively accomplish, you know, 80% plus of the clinical job to be done with this person in a digital first manner without saying, oh, you've got to go in. And because I think when you hit that threshold, you can fill the remaining 20% with in-person care relationships. So, you know, if someone has type two and they need their eyes checked, um, uh, you know, that's, Kind of in the 20% where you can help support getting them into their you know primary care doc wherever um, you know they, they need to go for whatever service they need um, so that's almost the benchmark and not everything's a fit for digital so you know a mod we're not going to be doing hip surgeries like things that require a lot of physical interaction with the human body just are not are not going to be a fit for digital care but there's so many areas where uh, it is a fit and those areas tend to be areas where a lot of touch points over a long period of time, with with some but minimal uh, needs to interact with the actual human body um, are a fit. So those are the areas we're interested in. Uh, and 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 and, you know, and then you also have to have the Venn diagram of is there a business model? Is this something that you know you could bring to scale in a sustain in a sustainable way um, before it to overall be successful for the country?
0: Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what does scale look like to Amada? I mean, is this an offering? for every employer? Is this a program that is integrated with, you know, uh, the electronic health record at like say Epic or Cerner and a physician can prescribe for a lady with newly diagnosed diabetes. I want you to join the Omada, you know, program the, for prevention, you know, what does, what does scale look like to you guys?
2: Yeah. I and mean, it's, this is fun. I mean, it's, we're, um, kind of a weird thing. Cause I'm, I, I personally, you know, as I said, you know, in the seat here at Lumada, I'm I'm like of two minds. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're hitting scale, and, and I also recognize like, wow, we're we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Like we um, I, I mean, we now have over 1,000 employers, uh, you know, that we work with Lumada, which is you know, I think a big big milestone for any company. I mean, in, any employer we walk into, there's a four in ten chance we already have some sort of a working relationship with our health plan. You know, um, you know, we've enrolled over 300,000 people. Uh, you know, I think that's that's all great. Um, and the, the, the funny thing is, though, you look at just the magnitude of the crisis and, you know, I, I, like we've not done anything yet from an epidemiological standpoint. And so we're, um, you know, we're equal parts like proud of our heritage and excited, you know, at the progress we felt, but like incredibly hungry. And, you know, you'll the team at Omada always hears me say like, awesome, let's be proud, but let's get to the the 1 million enrollments plus per year. Um, because I think that that's when you actually start to move the needle. Um, in the way that the country needs to and I, I mean it's it's staggering like the in last august the big mass gen put out an epi paper on key diabetes care measures in the u.s um in in a, the last decade we have made as a country no progress at all despite billions of dollars of therapeutic investments despite you know many providers and many innovative minds thinking about well how can we deliver type 2 care differently we've not made progress so um, we're hitting scale but in the same way in that same way i i just think we're you know we're completely subscale still so it's a i have to kind of hold both of the psychologies you know in my head at once i suppose
1: I think you guys are doing a great job of uh, laying the groundwork for for future companies to to kind of take on this model, which makes perfect sense in terms of improving outcomes, but doing so in a way that's that really fits into people's lives, right? Not every patient can come in to see the doctor to see the endocrinologist, take a day off work, and and like you said for for certain diseases, it just doesn't make sense to to rely on that brick and mortar system. I do want to jump a little bit into the the whole aspect of self insured employers. I think that's really critical to to Omada's business as uh, the mechanism to really deliver change. You know, American employers, they're in a really great position to drive healthcare transformation. They have the aligned incentives and in value, transparency, patient experience. Almost half of uh, our country receive coverage through their employer-sponsored plans. Um, you know, it's 150 million people. To put that in perspective, Medicaid is about 70 million. Medicare is about 60 million. You've given the example yourself of Starbucks, who actually buys more healthcare than they do coffee, which was mind-blowing to me. We've seen these self-insured employers make attempts to to drive change through wellness programs, on-site clinics, telemedicine, Haven, the joint venture that Amazon and Berkshire and JP Morgan have started. What do you think about these programs? Right. Are they are they complementary to the business model for? Companies like Omada, or or do you see them as competition? Why do you think that these attempts have not worked well so far?
2: Yeah, I mean it's funny. So um, I always I always try to just uh, ask enough questions until maybe the answer becomes kind of clear in the eyes of employers Because the whole the whole like wellness industry, I think it was very well intentioned. You know, the idea that oh, there's got to be ways to just improve the health of my employees. It's, the, there's a really good spirit there. Um, you know, I have found when I talk to employers. And ask, well, have what are the outcomes? That, what are the outcomes that you've seen? Like, oh, well, you know, this many people signed up. I'm like, any clinical outcomes? Like, have you seen any measures of weight loss, or you know, what what like metabolic outcomes or other health outcomes? And usually the answer is, oh, you know, like uh, I'm sure our vendor has something, but need to like get back to you. And and so it's it's funny. The um, I think culturally, wellness programs are great. I, like, I think that's a good thing to do. Like Omada, I mean, we, you know, in October we call it like our wellness month. I don't know how that even emerged just organic and it's just fun. It's like it promotes a culture of health. It's not, you know, it gets people thinking about health, health identity. Um, the, the challenge is that there's, it's really, you're, you're really hard pressed to find results it's so hard to get any outcome at all in this space and requires really supporting someone in such a deep way that the tool was not always suitable for the job. Um, and, and when uh, employers ask me, well, I really love this Bumata program. It seems great for like this particular population of my employees and, you know, like your approach and your evidence, what would you recommend I do for everybody? And, you know, what, what should I do for my wellness program? What I always share is like, look, focus. My, my guidance would be focus on your food culture in your organization mm-hmm. and, and really double down there, like press on your vendors that you use for foods, you know, think about, uh, you know, what you have available for your employees in terms of food and drink and, and start there, like view that as your wellness program. Um, because I because th- that I think is the best, most actionable and, and that, that oftentimes is free. So I would say that I don't tend to view them as competition. Um, I think that fully supportive of, of an employer wants for cultural reasons to put forward, you know, a, a program. I think the most, frankly, the most evidence-based version of that is to focus on food culture writ large across all employees.
1: One of the questions that I've always had about these self-insured employers and them investing in their employees is sometimes the financial savings from these sort of preventive interventions, they take years to to, to manifest, right? And the, the median employee tenure is about four years. Do employers bring this up to you as a hurdle when you're trying to say, Hey, invest in prevention. Invest in in these types of chronic conditions. If they feel that employees are going to jump ship or, or move to another employer in some time before that uh, that financial return can be realized.
2: Well, no, no, for sure. And I don't think it's I, I don't think it's just in employers. It's you know if, even if it's a fully insured. I mean, especially if it's a fully insured you know line of business, the health plan. Um, you know, frankly, even a Medicare Advantage uh, you know line because cap, you know essentially your capitated rates are it's more or less an annual cycle, right? So you know, you're, you're under this annual renewal and, 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 you know, payment process. And even, I mean, even at the integrated systems, oftentimes, even if it's kind of a full cap model, the providers get like a lump sum from their respective, you know, integrated plan every year. So you have to show savings almost no matter what, you know, we we started, at, you know, to model by investing heavily in clinical outcomes and then pretty quickly built on, you know, as, as we had more data and the ability to do it, economic outcomes. So we've now about four analyses done. The bulk of the savings in programs like Amata come from um, utilization changes and helping people engage with the health system in, in better, you know, more appropriate ways. So it's kind of neat. You can get near-term savings um, uh, by just uh, really helping people understand health generally and focus on you know more positive health behaviors and utilization. And and so that we have we it's I mean it's been really neat. Like we've yet to been surprised in the wrong direction with a claim study. And and you know oftentimes our partners partners are like, well, great, we're going to do this. And, you know, we'll support it. They have the data uh, um, uh, and, and it's, you know, that really helps. And it's funny. We have a very good hit rate of plans, you know, starting on their employer side, their ASO side, and then seeing the savings and then opening up their fully insured lines of business, um, which is, you know, them paying the dollars too, but you make, you make a good point. And the, the one prevailing comment, you know, I'll make to kind of tie a bow on this is the, you know, the reality too, is most, most things that deliver clinical outcomes, uh, you know, of all things actually add cost to the systems, like, you know, most therapeutics, most procedures. I mean, that's why like the, our, you know, our healthcare system is such a big percentage of GDP in large part, because we're paying for innovation that doesn't save money. So th- that pressure is changing. It's it's just an interesting kind of dynamic, um, where things that should be, you know, in my view so, so obvious, you know, not always thought of in the same way, um, but we, we, we definitely had to had to publish lots of econ trials along the way.
1: No, and I think that's what's so exciting about Omada, to be able to make prevention possible and financially profitable and, and hit really every single benchmark.
2: Yeah, no, and it's really hard. And I think that it's funny because I've never, as strange as it sounds, I don't I, you know, I haven't really thought of ourselves as ever a prevention company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of share more, more about what I mean. But when I'm when I'm, you know, even in early days, I mean, now obviously we've expanded beyond, you know, pre-diabetes to type two, you know, hypertension, et cetera. But um, uh, the whole mental model of the U.S. healthcare system is, you know, find a pathology and then find a corresponding treatment or therapy. So the the way that we fit into that is, look, we're addressing pre-diabetes or early metabolic disease with the corresponding intervention of a program. And so it's it's interesting, like even though even though it it is prevention, right? You're you're preventing the progression to type two, and even with type two, you're preventing the progression inside the disease, um, because the the wiring of our healthcare system is not always set up to support that. I found myself never really describing it as such, um, which is always like a funny self reflection. But um, you know, I think it's a statement exactly as you shared, where the tooling doesn't quite exist in the U.S. healthcare system to, to deploy things out of that model.
0: As a uh, lifestyle practitioner, Sean, I, I often am frustrated by, you know, the payment modeling in our current healthcare system. And I've always found it incredibly admirable that you guys have led with sort of outcomes being your measure of payment and your pricing structure is based on those outcomes. And um, you've talked about being paid based on the unit of value you produce for a company and their employees you know, some of the, your competitors may even get paid by per member per month basis. So how did you decide that you wanted to do the honorable thing and, and get paid by, you know, the product you put forth as opposed to, Hey, you know, just pay me for, for seeing your patients. You know, that's how healthcare works. That's, that's what we're going to stick to. I
2: didn't know anything about the business of medicine. Right. So, um, you know, I was in medical school had worked in technology before, um, Uh, I thought I didn't, I knew it wasn't commonplace, but I thought more things were priced on outcomes if you had the data to measure real time the outcomes. Um, So it just felt intuitive like, oh, well, we're, you know, pre pre your comment, the unit of value, well, we're getting the outcome, we should charge on the outcome. So it turns out it's not, that's not the case. Um, uh, But, you know, it felt like a good value prop that you could bring forward going to an employer or a plan. It's like, well, our fees are only going to be aligned with the clinical value that we're delivering. So if we align on that, you know we can align on the fees, and you know we found a lot of appreciation for that model. I think the we were also entering in a world where the vast majority of offerings that might have looked or felt something like Omada were priced on a per member per month basis, where you know it'd be like oh well we're going to give access to your full population for this for you know a dollar pmpm spread across the whole um, you know basis of the the you know the size of the employer or size of the plan, and there are certain things that that pricing model works fine for. What what was tough, and I think this was one of the many kind of trip ups of the DM industry. That you know, I think there are multiple, but this was one. Um, is if you have that pricing model, you're not aligned with your customers. In that, you know, let's say you're a ten thousand person employer. I'm charging you a dollar PMPM across your whole population. The more folks that use my services and product, the more it's going to compress my margins. So you never want a pricing model that's not aligned with your mission and your customers, in my view. And it became clear that that was a failing. So it's it's funny because I didn't so many people early on in Omada told me, you will never, wow, you're never gonna be able to build build a business that's not PMPM. And I I got that I got the criticism constantly. And I just like couldn't grok, like I was like, why not? Like we just have to I don't understand why. Like we we have to of course, we have to get people to sign up for the of program. But why should we be charging anything if that's not the case?
1: How did you plan actuarial risk? You know, especially starting out, that must have been really tough to figure out. Uh, you know what what's our revenue going to be like in two months, three months, six months? Uh, now you're more complex, and you know you've done this for for some years. How did you starting out? How did this? How did the actuarial risk planning work?
2: Yeah, no, I mean it's a good it's a really good point. I think the um, now, I mean, we have so much data; it's much easier you know, you can kind of have a sense for the the headwinds, the tailwinds, look at all your deployments, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. Um, took a lot of um, instrumentation in just kind of the forecasting and, you know, planning cycles. Um, the, the outcomes variance is far less than the the kind of enrollment variance, which is kind of funny in our business. Um, so, so what can happen is, you know, like let's say, and this happens less for Amada because we have so many customers that it, you know, that you, gets kind of washed in the noise but like in early days let's say we had this really big deployment and it was you know planned for q1 and we we're going to hit the hit the go on the marketing in q1 to enroll people in q1 um but but it was planned for and we'd aligned with the client that you know the deployment date in the marketing date was going to be like March 12th right if if internally they were like oh you know we're doing a big all hands on the 12th we don't want to launch then you know we, we really let's do it in April 5th like we have to listen to that, but like all of a sudden our quarters are completely lopsided. So that that's actually been the variance that's been hardest to pin down um, because once we had enough, you know, once we were operating in the tens of thousands of, you know, enrollments in the program, um, you know, you could quickly, um, you know, pin down the outcomes variance. The enrollment variance took us a little bit longer to, to you know, get to a point where We could forecast the business accurately, Um, but it's been, it's been a, you know, it was a journey to get there because it is an unusual pricing model, unusual forecasting model. You know, as we, when, when we have auditors come in, you know, of course to do our kind of annual, you know, financial audits, they they look at now they're completely comfortable with it, but they look at it originally like, wow, we have never seen anything like this. (laughs) So we've, you know, innovated, innovated a whole host of ways.
1: It's something I hope more companies will move to. And I think that's happening. It's happening on the provider side. I think a lot of digital health companies will follow. I think everyone knows in healthcare more than than any other industry, public policy has a much bigger influence than traditional market forces. The ACA created many new requirements, one of which mandated that health plans cover preventive services that were recommended by the US Preventive Services Task Force now that task force recommendation on behavioral counseling for obesity must have been a very important chapter i would say in omada's story you know had that recommendation not come out how would things have been different for omada so i think it's a great example of the impact of health policy on um, the commercial side of healthcare
2: yeah i know absolutely i mean it was definitely helpful with health plans i mean because it's um, you know the uh, grade b grade b rec- grade b or a recommendations from the SPSCF do not do not come easily Right. So that's, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. kind of why it was written into ACA. Uh, What what would have the world looked like without, you know, I think we could could have still gotten to where we are today, Um, but it was definitely wind in our sails for sure. Just because it was such a stamp of approval. I I would say tactically the the neatest thing is it made it so easy to operationally design the way we contract with plans to make it skip all deductibles and have no patient copay. And and it's and it, that's actually it's just it's actually harder though, though you can do it it's it's much harder there's not like a piping inside the IT infrastructure um, uh, of of plans to be able to do that if it, um, but preventive services had a piping so because USPSTF qualified our offerings of preventive it allowed us to very easily um, make sure that as we build through the plan the person signing up for the moda program didn't end up with a copay, I mean, it didn't end up hitting their hitting their deductible in their insurance design.
1: That's great. It just makes it so seamless. So much more seamless, exactly.
0: Uh, Sean, I want to jump to the side real fast and talk a little bit about data. You know, data that Amata collects is incredibly valuable, especially as it, as it provides sort of meaningful use and predictive analytics like machine learning. And as all this continues to evolve... Um, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, though, uh, if you can uh, think about some specific examples of challenges you've encountered in using advanced analytics to make sensible use of your data and and maybe apply it clinically.
2: Um, yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, so the it's it's because it, sometimes people ask, well, oh my gosh, the you know the Fire API standards and the trend toward more interoperability in EMRs, like how's it going to change the game for? your participants in a, in a, and it's going to be great no doubt like that's really exciting the, the the problem i've always found with a lot of those data are you know if you look at claims they're almost it's a too little too late right there there's such a lag between when you can get the claims data um it's really indicating action or or it's just not granular enough to really matter as much to the person so our most valuable data is like the micro data it's literally as someone um, do they tend to weigh in at 9am or 8am and how do you shape how the coach reaches out to them because of that? Do we notice that, you know, they pause on the end of the lesson action takeaways for 45 seconds and pick, or do they just pick it in one second and how do we change what we suggest to the coach based on that? So um, it's, it's fascinating. I would say that the US yes, for like lessons or there's all these awesome things that the coaches have at the tip of their hands where like, churn algorithms looking at deltas in you know ways that people used to be weighing them and aren't on an individual basis. It'll kind of surface that and say, hey, you know, you might want to take a look at this person's, you know, behavior in this way. ML models against those data patterns and, and building kind of churn algorithms. That's all like neat and amazing tables like the, the biggest surprise is you also have to um, not forget that like logic and business rules can matter too. And you almost don't want to fall too much in love with the data side but you want to appreciate how to use it because you like little things like if if you have a coach wish someone a happy birthday um on the day of that's less emotionally impactful if if the coach you know reaches out and says hey i noticed that your birthday is coming up you know next week right And that's and so what, true right so it's like like where would you would you have would magical ai like have you know brought forward that insight like no like that's like listening and human intuition and user insight. So we have kind of two things that structure, you know, the ways that we reach out, that we have our coaches reach out. We have the rules that like business logic, which are like intuition based, things like that, the happy birthday example. And then we have the data models. And so you you, you almost have to appreciate both for what they are and, and what they can do equally.
0: That's fascinating. And I think uh, you kind of touched on the idea and, and Samir and I have talked ad nauseum about this is that, you know, if you look at AI machine learning um, within sort of the Gardner hype cycle, I think it's really at the peak of inflated expectations right now. (laughs) Uh And I think you made a really interesting comment where you're not necessarily using it um, from a macro standpoint. You're actually looking at the individual variances that help shape behavior, which make the product that you're delivering or the service you're providing to your uh, to, to your uh, patients and, and employee, employees that you're tr- treating even better, um, and I think those nuances, those subtleties in the data, um, to help shape behavior are incredibly impactful and power and powerful. At the end of the day, yeah, no, no
2: thank you. I think I and completely, yeah, com- I mean, completely agree. And it's it's I'm, I'm with you on the the kind of hype cycle. The, the um, incredibly powerful technologies, right? Incredibly powerful. Um, AI is essentially machine learning, right? In most in most use cases, um, and and it's Um, uh, it's really, it's really misunderstood. I think that's natural with any technology, right? Like look at anything brand new that's come to the world. Um, so, you know, it's something that it's gotten quite buzzy. Um, uh, at the end of the day, what matters is how you use it to make a better experience for a person. Um, and, and then you want to make sure that you, you've got systems that are in my view, um, learning to be better and smarter based on human input so and this is this is kind of the same thing with you know tesla's auto driving or even the way that they categorize pictures to train ml models you have a human you know saying yes that's a cat and then that's a signal to train the ml model that a human helped support this acknowledgement that that's a cat In, in omana's version of that it's our coaches help make our system smarter because we leave it at their choice to at the end of the day pick whether they take advantage of our suggestions or not and if they don't that's actually a negative signal of the model that what we teed up violated you know a human's intuition um, if they do it's a positive signal so it's you know it's, it's almost like um, a neat interplay between our systems getting smarter thanks to the ways that we're actually watching our coaches um uh you know leverage the tools or not
1: was there any thought to use alternative styles of motivating patients behavior aside from health coaches when you were building out omada were there other alternatives that you were exploring besides health coaches? Are there are there downsides or mm-hmm, yeah. sometimes challenges to using health coaches that you've noticed or examples of that?
2: Well, I think it's not it's not the only thing that matters to a person, right? So I don't think um you know if it was just a coach and a message to a participant, I don't think it would be successful because there's you know you've got the content experience and you've got the group experience and all the tracking components and like the clear goals um, and to all those matter. Um, but we did, we did, we did poke around with other learning models very, very early on. I mean, um, we always felt that the coach was important, but w- you know, we tried just, p- just kind of peer, peer-to-peer mentorship and training and learning circles. We didn't write any code without sitting in people's homes with, you know, pre-diabetes or diabetes. And we, you know, we did like a couple trips, like one in the Bay Area, and went to Georgia for one, and we just kept reflecting, like, could, could this person get the emotional support and the accountability needed to make what are really hard changes without a person. And we couldn't, we couldn't convince ourselves that the answer was, was yes. You know, so we had to figure out, well, that's a design constraint. And the question is, well, how do you scale something in a way that's very high tech, but, but high tech, but still remains high touch? It, I would say that the idea that we, we could do this without coaches was a thought that like we we felt conviction was not going to work pretty early on.
1: Sean, thanks thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with us here. I'm just gonna ask one one last question is what advice would you give to a garage entrepreneur who's who's sitting there just raising a seed round, has an idea in digital health, about to start up, given the, the current landscape and, and how things have happened, what advice would you give to that entrepreneur?
2: It all starts like make sure you love like you you fall in love with solving the problem. Because it's it, healthcare especially in enterprise healthcare. I mean it's um, it's the double black diamond of enterprise entrepreneurship. It's I mean, it really is it's so hard. Like you're dealing with so many like we've talked about a lot of it on this on this the podcast here, but full fully injured, ASO government plans, you know regulatory environment, okay. policy, weird reimbursement models like clinical trials, That's software. It? It's, it's really yeah, exactly. it's really hard. Every company's hard to build. It doesn't matter if you're consumer or enterprise enterprise healthcare, I think is especially hard. I think the, the the counterbalance there is I think there are more opportunities in healthcare where it becomes not about you, it becomes literally about solving the problem, and you 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 don't even um you're willing that's how I feel about Amada still to this day like you're willing to get hit in the face so many times and just like get right back up and keep running and you, you stay you, it allows you if you really know that the world needs to have something different um, it allows you to just like muster up the determination. Um, to do it so like as an entrepreneur like go into it knowing how hard it's going to be don't do it unless you have that problem where it just it it honestly doesn't feel about like it about you it feels like it's something that you just have to have to keep chipping away at and you won't stop and because that that actually will will be what allows you to like power through all the challenges that you're going to face so make sure and then if you don't if you don't have that love for the problem wait don't do it wait until you find something that just pulls you